Welcome to the latest episode of The Wharton Current. My name is Thomas Obermeyer, and I'm joined today by one of our new co-hosts this year, Nick Van Hollen, who is a Wharton second year MBA and Harvard Kennedy School MPA dual degree student. Today's guest could not have been more timely. We're excited to speak with Jesse Jenkins, assistant professor at Princeton, jointly in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering and the Anlinger Center for Energy and Environment. You may know him from a wide variety of publications on electricity markets and models, or on Twitter, where he's an important follow as an energy analyst and explainer of policies. Today we cover how models can be used to understand complex energy systems and why solely relying on variable energy sources, such as solar and wind, is like having your star point guard play center. We also discuss the merits of the proposed clean electricity performance program over a carbon tax. Please keep in mind, that this conversation was recorded shortly prior to reports that Senate Democrats were dropping the CEPP from the reconciliation package due to withheld support from West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Nevertheless, the conversation is helpful in getting a better understanding of each policy mechanism, especially as a potential carbon tax proposal has been floating around again. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Jesse, thank you so much for joining the first episode of the academic year of the Wharton Current. We're very excited to have you on. Both Nick and I are huge fans of your research, and especially your Twitter feed, where you do a great job of explaining any climate or energy policy proposals in a way that is easy to understand. Before we dive into the topics, and and we have a lot to cover today, would you mind spending a few minutes walking us through your background, how you became interested in your area of research, and where you are now? Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, so yeah, I'm Jesse. I'm uh, an assistant professor at Princeton University uh, with a, an appointment at the Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment and in the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department. Um, I'm a macro scale energy systems engineer, so I study the energy systems at a regional or national scale uh, with a particular focus on the electricity sector, which plays a central role in our transition to cleaner energy sources, both in the electricity sector itself and also expanding electricity uh, to power cars and industry and heating um, and other activities that currently use fossil fuels. So in our work, we primarily uh, use optimization-based models that uh, try to capture the key engineering and economic considerations, policy constraints, um, environmental or land use constraints, and then try to see how energy systems evolve uh, with the you know, introduction of new technologies or new policies or other forces that can change uh, how those, uh, those systems evolve over time. So I uh, have been at Princeton since 2019. Prior to that, I was a postdoctoral environmental fellow at the Harvard Center for the Environment and the Harvard Kennedy School. And I earned my PhD uh, at MIT in engineering systems, which was an interdisciplinary program um, that kind of allows you to choose your own adventure a little bit. Um, And so I focused um, primarily on uh, kind of a mix of um, optimization methods, uh, applied microeconomics, uh, energy economics, environmental economics, other topics, uh, regulatory economics, uh, and power systems, trying to understand, you know, the physics and engineering of electricity systems. And, you know, the focus on all three of those pieces is central to our research, which is kind of inherently interdisciplinary. You know, if you want to design good policy, you have to understand the physics and the economics of the systems you're trying to influence. If you want to design good engineering systems, you have to understand the regulatory environment and the economics and markets that those technologies are going to operate in. 
and you can't, you know, function in a business setting unless you understand the policy and physical realities that you're working in. So, you know, that intersection is where the rubber meets the road in the energy sector. And, and that's where our research focuses on as well. Awesome. Thanks, Jesse. That was a really helpful background and it segues well into the first few topics we're hoping to cover. For starters, could you give our listeners a bit more of an overview of energy system modeling and specifically how the practice has evolved due to both the emergence of distributed energy resources and then also the growing focus on decarbonization? You mentioned the question about, you know, what the impact of changing technologies like distributed resources, rooftop solar, et cetera, um, or wind and solar have had on the field. And it's been pretty transformative for the last decade or so. Because prior to that point, you know, the growth of wind or solar or distributed resources, mostly these planning models were dealing with what mix of thermal, fossil fired or nuclear power plants you want to have in your system. And th those plants can be turned on whenever you want. They can ramp up and down pretty much as needed. And so you can ignore most of the kind of intertemporal dynamics of what happens from hour to hour, minute to minute, and just say, look, I got to have enough power plants to meet my highest level of demand, my peak demand. And I want to have the right mix of power plants that have different fixed costs or capital costs and different variable costs to be used at different use utilization rates, right? I have a nuclear plant or coal plant that runs all the time. And so I use that to meet my lowest level of demand or base load. And then I want to have a plant that kind of operates maybe 60% of the time. It ramps up and down to meet the you know, variations during the day. Uh, so maybe that's a natural gas power plant with a little lower capital cost and a little bit higher fuel cost. And then I have some power plants that only operate when the demand's really high, you know, 10% of the year. And so those plants you want to add a very low fixed cost because you're not running them very often. So you don't amortize that cost over a lot of hours. And it doesn't really matter if the fuel is very expensive because you're not using them that often and you only use them when it's really valuable. So we call those peaker power plants. And so it's a pretty simple optimization. You actually write it out by hand and solve it, you know, by hand. And, you know, we teach my students that in our class. What wind and solar and distributed resources do is they add a really important intertemporal component to the problem because now the wind and the solar output change all the time um, and they are correlated differently across sites and they're correlated differently with demand. And so you can't just abstract from the you know, time series, you need to represent these varying time series in your models. And you have energy storage, which is starting to link different time periods or I can move power from you know, noon when I've got a lot of solar into the evening. Um, and you have to think about where in the system you want to build things. You can't just locate your thermal power plant wherever you want. You got to put your wind where it's windy. You got to put your distributed resource where you have rooftops. You got to put your solar where it's, you know, where there's good solar resource. And so you have to now start to represent the transmission network in a lot more detail. And so all that detail, you start to cram it into a model and it makes the computational burden, you know, explode. And that drove a whole bunch of really fun research over the last 10, 15 years to try to make better planning tools that could capture these sorts of details. And there's been a fun kind of, you know, next generation of energy system planning models that um, haven't yet really worked their way into the private sector yet, although I think that will happen soon, but are used widely in the research sphere um, for, you know, academic research and increasingly for policy advice and guidance as well. That's fascinating. There's a great energy markets and policy course at Wharton uh, taught by Arthur Van Bentham. And we did a similar exercise in that class to what you described as some of the earlier stages of power system modeling and, and some of the teaching points that you've used in your classes where you have a bunch of thermal plants in a relatively simplified system and you run the numbers on marginal costs against demand to figure out when different plants should be operating and so on. And uh, that was hard enough for me. Well, this is why we have computers, right? You don't want to have to do it by hand. That's yeah. why you have computers to solve it for us. 
So yeah, I can I can only imagine there's some pretty sophisticated computations going on under the hood when you get to some of these newer evolutions of, of the models. It's pretty cool stuff. One of the power optimization models that you've been working on is the Gen X model, uh, which I think your team developed with some folks at MIT. I'm pretty sure I've heard the Gen X model being called an open source Ferrari for energy modeling in some of the other energy podcasts I listen to. What was the impetus for building that model and what types of gaps does it fill in the world of energy system analysis? Yeah, so we uh, I, I built out the Gen X model along with a colleague, Nestor Sepulveda, um, while we were both graduate students at MIT. And what had basically happened is before we built Gen X, there, you know, each student that kind of came through the PhD program had a research question, built a kind of fit for purpose model to answer that question in their dissertation, and then walked out the door with it, right? And it was sort of never used again. And, and the next student had to come in and build their own model from scratch again. And, you know, there's some value to building the model yourself and learning the experience, you know, of how to put it together. But if your job, if what you really want to do is answer questions, not build tools, you spend an awful lot of time just building the model before you can even do the research and tackle the open questions that you want to get into. And so our kind of premise was, all right, if we're both going to build models for our thesis, they're both capacity planning models, why don't we build the same model? We collaborate together and we make sure that it is useful for both of our purposes and probably several others that we're not even gonna use, but we know others might wanna use. And so we set about to build a tool that we kind of thought of like a Swiss army knife in the sense that there was a bunch of features packed into it, but like a Swiss army knife, you can't take all the tools out and use them at the same time, right? Because it gets you know, all jammed up on you. And the same is true here. There's a lot you can't, you know, you can dial up the resolution of all the features to the to 11 on all of our, you know, different dimensions in the model, but it won't solve computationally. It just gets too complicated. Um, but what it does allow you to do is reconfigure the model for whatever purpose uh, you have along basically three main dimensions. The first is how we represent the time series data, the temporal resolution of the model. So do you model every hour of the year or do you model a selected number of days or weeks that kind of represent a broader number? Uh, the operational detail, so do you capture with high fidelity all the constraints on thermal power plants or energy storage or things like that, or do you kind of abstract back to the sort of simpler times of the thermal power plant world where you didn't need to represent all that detail? Um, and, uh, and then the network detail, how do you, you know, represent the, the geospatial topology of your network? Um, and the constraints on power flows between regions in your system. And sometimes you don't care at all about that. You're modeling some hypothetical, you know, test system to just understand the interaction of different technologies and you don't need to know what the, you know, idiosyncrasies of a network are. On the other hand, you might be running a study where you're trying to provide policy guidance for New England or the PGM marketplace, which is where um, Pennsylvania and New Jersey are which is a study we're finishing right now. Uh, and then you actually have to capture the reality of that network detail. Uh, otherwise, you're not going to be able to give good guidance. And so, you know, you can turn all these features up or down um, and you have to kind of find the right balance of uh, feature set for whatever question you're trying to answer. Um, and again, it's, you know, can never model every bit of detail. So what you have to do is think about your research question uh, or your you know, practical question and what is the level of detail on each of these dimensions that you want um, and kind of spin up the model in that format. And we wanted to make it an open source tool that was available to the rest of the world as well, uh, both in the academic and non-academic context. Um, so if you go to genx.mit.edu, you can find the kind of landing page and a link to the, the GitHub page and documentation and everything else. And so hopefully they'll beyond the, you know, there's already a couple dozen people or a dozen people or so, yeah, a couple dozen, I guess, at, at MIT and Princeton using it. Um, but we're hoping that over the, the year and the years ahead, we'll see more and more users, both at academic 
you know, contexts, you know, other universities that don't need to build their own tool from scratch and in the private sector, NGOs, you know, others like that, that might want to use the tool also. And hopefully people will start contributing more features, right? You know, we'll keep adding features to it at Princeton and MIT, which is a great R&D engine to have. Um, but, you know, if somebody else wants to add a new module, then they can make it available to the rest of the world too. So hopefully, you know, it's an open source experiment. If we get a critical mass, it'll be really exciting. And if we don't, it'll still be a great tool for Princeton and MIT to use. So worth the effort. Until we get to that critical mass of users and the public discourse around the electricity system and how to decarbonize it considers all of its complexities, what do you think, to the extent that you can generalize, are some misconceptions that people have about decarbonization that your model could clear up? Yeah, um, maybe I'll, I'll fo focus on a couple that I think illustrate the usefulness of these sorts of models. Um, so one is that you might think and be you know pretty sensible to think that we want to use the cheapest source of electricity, right? You know, it's like you, you know, you want to get the cheapest cereal at the grocery store, or you want to, you know, buy the cheapest gasoline from your, you know, from the cheapest gas station, right? Um, and so, if you know, wind or solar power are now the cheapest sources of electricity in the country, which is the case, right? Um, for new wind and solar, the costs have come down ninety percent for solar in, in the last decade, and about 70, 70 percent for wind in the last decade, and you can get both. Uh, now for a median price of about $33 a megawatt hour, best projects are in the $20 a megawatt hour range. And so, our, you know, like that's the cheapest source of electricity you can get. And a new natural gas plant even is more expensive than that. So you might think, great, we're sort of done. We don't need policy anymore. We've sort of used the policy to push the cost of wind and solar down the cost curve. And now they're just going to take off as the cheapest technologies and outcompete everything else. Um, and the challenge with that, you know, mental model is that it's a it's it's not comparing you know regular gasoline at one station to another or cornflakes from kellogg's and the generic brand right which are perfect substitutes for each other it's more like comparing the cost of a banana to the cost of a burger if you're trying to decide what to eat right so a banana is cheaper than a burger good information but not sufficient information to decide what you want to eat in your diet right because you know the first bit of potassium you get from the banana is great but after that it starts to become less useful if you only eat burgers, your doctor is going to yell at you for cholesterol or whatever. But, you know, if you eat it a little bit, it's great for your, your protein intake. You know, and so like your diet, the power system is composed of a bunch of different pieces that have different nutritional value or different energy system value. And they serve different roles in, the, in your diet, your energy system diet. And they're both complementary to one another. Right. When you have like rice and beans, you get a complete protein. Right. Um, so when you get batteries and, and, and solar, you get a more complete package. Uh, and they um, they have declining marginal value, just like the nutritional value of any given type of you know, vitamin or something. Um, and so the more solar we have, the less the solar is worth. And the more wind we have, the less it's worth. Um, that's true for anything, right? You think about economics, supply and demand, the more supply you have, the lower the price, the lower the value. But it's particularly true for wind and solar because their output is variable and it's correlated with each other. So it's sunny most places at the same time. It's windy across wide areas at the same time. And so you get a big flood of output from those resources when they're available and they have no marginal cost. They're free, you know, there's no fuel. And so they basically push the supply curve out. And if you think about, you know, supply and demand crossing each other, you push the supply curve out, the price falls. And so as you get more wind and solar at any given time, the, the price that wind and solar earn and their value in the market in terms of what they're displacing steadily falls. 
And that can be actually pretty rapid. Um, in California, which is the leading state for solar penetration, I think maybe other than Hawaii, um, the value of solar in that marketplace, according to Lawrence Berkeley National Labs report, has fallen by about 20% already over the last few years. You know, so the, the, the upshot of this is you need an energy system model that can put all the pieces together and understand how they interact in your diet, right? And how having a little bit more solar influences the amount of batteries you build. And then when you have more batteries, that changes the value of the natural gas plants or the nuclear plants. Um, and so you get these sort of emergent properties of the system as a whole. And that makes a lot of very simple comparisons that are easy for the general public or for policymakers to, you know, to, to use, uh, like the levelized cost of energy, which is a simple metric for the sort of average revenue that a technology needs to earn to cover its cost. We often compare those to each other as if they're comparable, but when the technologies are not comparable, you're comparing bananas and burgers. Um, and unfortunately, you know, there's not, a, I can't give you a simple alternative that's correct. You have to unfortunately sort of tease these dynamics out of energy system models and try to uh, under, you know, express them in ways that are relatable. You know, so I use these energy diet metaphors. Uh, I also try to talk about a race between declining cost and declining value for the technologies, right? So it's not about making solar cheaper than gas. It's about keeping solar costs declining faster than the value declines. And if you can do that, then the market penetration can keep growing. And if you lose that race, if value falls faster than cost, then you're going to have to stop or slow down the deployment. Or conversely, keep subsidizing it at higher and higher levels to keep it moving from a policy perspective. So that's one example. Um, energy storage has similar dynamics where, you know, the first little bit of energy you add has a lot of value, but, you know, it's an arbitrage play, right? You buy low and sell high. And like any other arbitrage opportunity, the more people that buy low, the higher the low price gets. And the more people that sell high, the high, lower the high price gets. And so you kind of squeeze your profit margin and eventually it doesn't make sense to deploy storage unless it keeps getting cheaper. Um, so a lot of dynamics like that that come out of these models. And once you sort of tease it out of the model, you kind of understand the mechanism, you can explain it and people can get their heads around it. But you have to do the work to sort of understand the mechanisms in these complex systems. And that's what models are useful for. They're, they're useful for explanation much more than prediction. I, I don't, I'm not in the prediction game. I'm in the explanation game and trying to provide guidance to folks on how uh, these systems operate and interact with each other. That was an extremely helpful food-based mental model. Jesse, you clearly know how to reach graduate school audiences. Somewhat related to the lessons learned from these types of models that you spoke to, you wrote a great op-ed in the New York Times last winter about the power crisis that transpired in Texas and, and what we can learn about it. How can the types of models that we've been discussing be used to help prevent situations like that from happening in the future? Yeah, well, I guess I'll, I'll start by uh, admitting to some blind spots in our current models, which were on high display in Texas. And, it, and unfortunately, because the same kinds of blind spots were there in the, in the regulators and the market design in Texas, people lost their lives because the power was out for days in, the winter, in winter weather. Um, and that's that we, you know, we typically think of that you need a mix of wind and solar resources, which I describe as fuel saving technologies, right? They're not there to meet your demand all the time. They're variable. Um, and as I said in our, my New York Times op-ed, they're reliably unreliable, right? We know they're unreliable and you should know that, like everyone knows that. Don't count on them to be there. If you don't count on them to be there, you won't run into any trouble. Um, when they are available, they are free, right? The wind has no fuel costs, the solar has no fuel costs. And so they displace other technologies like natural gas or coal plants that have a higher fuel cost. They might not let you shut down the whole gas plant, but every time they generate a megawatt hour, that's a megawatt hour less natural gas you have to burn. 
uh, and that has value. That's where solar and wind deliver their value to our energy system. Batteries are really good at shifting energy around within the day, but they run out of power. And so I call them fast burst technologies. They're good for kind of a quick sprint, but then, you know, they run out. Um, and so the third key leg of the stool are what we call firm generation technologies, which are technologies that are there when you need them for as long as you need them. And we traditionally think of most of the fossil assets and nuclear, you know, so natural gas plants, coal plants, nuclear plants um, as firm technologies. And what we learned in Texas is that they're only as firm as they are, you know, prepared to handle the extreme weather. Um, and so both the natural gas power plants and the natural gas delivery infrastructure and wells were not weatherized for the kind of cold temperatures that uh, Texas experienced in February. You know, if they were in, it's certainly possible to do that, right? You have, you know, oil wells in Alberta and, you know, um, wind farms operating in, you know, Minnesota and other places where the, the cold temperatures are regular and they get winterized to deal with those sorts of temperatures. But in Texas, it's a once in a decade kind of thing or less, was thought to be less often. Um, and so investors didn't invest the resources in uh, weatherizing their, you know, their infrastructure. They often like the cooling systems for gas plants are sitting outside. They're not even in a building, right? Um, the gathering lines for natural gas wells are just sitting on the surface uninsulated. Um, and so they can freeze. They condense, you know, there's, there's moisture in the lines from condensate and that condensate can freeze and then the lines can't operate anymore. Uh, wind turbines could be installed with blade techno uh, de-icing technology, little radiative heaters in, inside them, basically, um, or resistive heaters, and, and you know that costs a little more, so they, they don't do that unless they think they need it. Um, and the regulators didn't require it, uh, and the market design didn't have any incentive for you know long-term procurement of firm capacity, and so it they, you know, didn't really have a contract in place to require that either. Uh, and so what happened was that the firm technologies that we count on to be there, to be reliable, weren't reliable. Um, there were massive outages of natural gas plants, some coal plants, even one of the nuclear reactors. Uh, and as a result, for uh, more than a week, um, Texas had severe uh, deficit of electrical supply at a time when you had record high demands from heating because um, it was really cold. And that's a deadly combination because it meant the power system had to curtail large amounts of demand simply by shutting off whole substations and whole neighborhoods. Um, and normally you would do a ro rotating blackout. So like in California last summer, they had a similar instance where they had to do some rotating blackouts, which is you know terrible, not something you want to ever have happen. But the average outage for people was about 20 minutes because they only were about 2% short in supply. And so you could rotate around you know, which 2% of demand was curtailed. Uh, and make sure that, you know, people's air conditioners came on 15 or 20 minutes later. In Texas, they were, if I recall correctly, something on the order of 30 or 40 percent short. And there's just no way you can do rotating blackouts when you have to cut 30 or 40 percent of your demand, especially when you need to leave on certain critical infrastructure like hospitals and others that just can't be turned off. And in fact, they actually exacerbated the problem by uh, having failed to require reporting of um, natural gas compressor stations as critical infrastructure. So some natural gas, just as they needed the most natural gas supply to supply their power plants, some compressor stations lost power in the rotating blackouts or not so rotating blackouts as well, further curtailing gas supply. So it's just a huge mess um, of you know failing to deal with the potential for these extreme outcomes because they were thought to be improbable. But like all insurance, 
it's not just the risk level, the, the probability that forms the risk, it's the, the level of the impact times the probability. And just like none of us expect to ever have our house burn down, you still buy fire insurance for your house because if it does burn down, you know, on the odd chance, the you know, one in a, a, a thousand chance, uh, you lose everything and you can't rebuild from that, right? And the same, you know, I think is true for dealing with extreme weather and energy systems. And unfortunately, the level of insurance that Texas's policy and market environment and you know public's required of the energy system uh, wasn't high enough for those sorts of extreme weather. And I think that's emblematic of the kinds of challenges we're going to face across all kinds of critical infrastructure uh, with a changing climate, which is going to push the bounds of the normal, right? So that the extreme events of the last hundred years will no longer be as extreme as they were, or as rare as they were. Jesse, staying on the topic of firm resources, um, you recently published a paper called What is Different About Different Net Zero Carbon Electricity Systems, um, in which you look at an electricity market that has a high level of variable sources and then studied what type of firm source, be it nuclear, natural gas with carbon capture, or zero carbon fuels such as biogas and hydrogen, would best complement the variable sources. I found the paper interesting because you concluded that for financial and risk mitigation reasons, a multi-technology approach, instead of focusing on a singular technology, is the most beneficial. Did that surprise you in any way? It's more or less what we expected because this was a detailed case study of the Western United States with a focus on California that was fairly similar to a much more abstracted system that we modeled. I modeled in a paper with Nestor Sepulveda in 2018. Um, it was published in 2018. Um, on the role of firm low carbon resources in low carbon grids. And so we, you know, we kind of saw this in a hypothetical imaginary system that was very simplified. And so what we wanted to do is look at a more realistic context like California and try to better tease out again, the mechanisms that explained why the firm resources were so important for cost-effective decarbonization for, you know, getting to a carbon-free grid without seeing prices for electricity skyrocket or reliability deteriorate, which are, you know, prerequisites. We have to do both of those things, right? Avoid uh, significant cost increases and maintain reliability. Uh, and so what we found in, in the first study, and again, in this, this uh, more recent study uh, on California, is that, you know, again, wind and solar and batteries are really cheap. There are now mature technologies that are scaling rapidly with major investment behind them. Um, and they enjoy current policy support, right? There are sustained policies that support their growth. And so sort of the question was, how far does that get us? Right. California set a, a, a goal in, uh, in fall of 2018, the first major state to do this, to be 100% carbon-free uh, electricity supply by 2045. You know, been a lot of policies that targeted 25% clean or 50% clean. California's previous goal was 60% uh, clean by 2030, I think. Um, and now they're setting a goal to go all the way to 100. And the challenge there is that we can no longer rely on natural gas power plants to play that firm role, at least if they're supposed to be firm. They weren't in Texas, but they're supposed to be there. Um, you know, and, and when the supply is there, they are able to ramp up and down reliably when we need them, and they can complement the variable wind and solar and the shorter duration batteries. But you go to 100% clean, you can't do that anymore. And so the question was, what else do we need to complement the wind, solar, and batteries that are already on track? And um, you know, should we pick the best technology and kind of double down on it and make sure that it's moving forward, or do we need to sort of plan a portfolio of technologies? Um, and what we found in the earlier paper was that having at least one clean firm technology, so a substitute for natural gas that had zero emissions, dropped the cost of getting to a carbon-free grid by somewhere between 
uh, I think it was 15 and 65% or something like that. So substantial reductions in cost, depending on the, you know, how pessimistic you were about the cost of the clean firm technology. Like we modeled, you know, today's nuclear costs, which are really high. Um, and then how optimistic you are about the uh, future cost reductions for wind and solar and batteries. So you can kind of be very optimistic about those, very pessimistic about the firm technologies. And it still makes sense to deploy some of that really expensive firm technology at the end. Because once you have to turn away from those gas plants, making wind and solar and batteries play a firm role is like trying to have your, you know, your dribbling point guard catch all of your, you know, your rebounds too and act like your power forward or your center, right? You know, there's like different players for different positions on the court and, you know, you try to make a, uh, a star play a role they're not good at and they're just not going to be good anymore. <laughs> and that's kind of the same thing with wind and solar and, and batteries here. And so we um, looked at a range of firm technologies and we kind of picked those three as emblematic, um, not because they're our only options, but because nuclear, gas with CCS, and uh, gas plants running on some kind of expensive carbon-free fuel like hydrogen um, span the range of high fixed cost and low variable cost in the case of nuclear. It could also be geothermal, it fits the same bill, uh, to low fixed cost and very high variable cost in the case of the, you know, the, gas, the peaker running on, um, on zero carbon gas. It could also be a fuel cell, um, you know, biomethane, things like that. Um, and then in the middle is the sort of gas plant with CCS or biomass with CCS where they, you know, still have some capital intensity, but also a moderate fuel cost. Uh, and so we wanted to, so in the experiment, we tried each one of them on their own and replicated the same result that having at least one of them drops the cost dramatically and substantially reduces the amount of wind and solar uh, and batteries you have to build, which makes their scale up and siting challenges and transmission expansion much more, you know, realistic. Um, and it lowers the cost, which is good. But then we said, all right, is one of these better than the other? So let's try to compete two you know, pairs of them with each other and then all three of them together. And what we found was that the lowest system actually had a blend of all three. Uh, and so it wasn't, again, just that one of those technologies was better than the rest. I mean, you could probably come up with a set of cost assumptions where one is you know, going to dominate the other. But if they're all reasonably competitive, all three technologies are deployed. And that argues for development of a whole portfolio of clean firm technologies now, as opposed to picking your favorite and kind of doubling down. So we should be investing in advanced geothermal, advanced nuclear, carbon capture, you know, um, hydrogen production from every source that you can that produces it without emissions, um, you know, biomethane, um, you know, biomass with carbon capture, a whole bunch of different uh, processes that could all produce clean firm power with a range of fixed and, and variable costs so that we can have a portfolio of those technologies available. And also to mitigate some of the unmodeled risks that we didn't consider, which is that, you know, everywhere in the country has different preferences. They have different social priorities. They have differing um, land use constraints. They have differing resource availability. And so there's probably not going to be a one size fits all solution for the whole country or for the whole world. And so we need differing portfolios that can work with the resource endowments and social priorities or political priorities of different parts of the world, too. You mentioned the non-model risk in your paper. You also talk about another caveat being just the long developmental and build-out timeline of some of these technologies or that they're still somewhat in their nascent stages. Um, I'm also thinking about public opinion here and especially nuclear energy's lack of public support in the U.S. and also large parts of Europe and other places around the world. How realistic or implementable do you think that this multi-technology approach is with a broad portfolio of technologies in the U.S.? 
I think it's pretty realistic because it's what we're doing. Um, if you look at what's in the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's pending in Congress right now and the House um, budget reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better framework, um, they both provide substantial support, as we recommended in our work, uh, for a range of more nascent uh, advanced you know, power technologies, as well as long duration energy storage, which is another potential you know, arrow in our quiver if it can come down in cost enough. Um, and so the, there's substantial amounts of RD&D, sort of research development and demonstration funding, as well as early um, deployment subsidies for kind of full-scale commercial deployment of advanced nuclear, advanced geothermal, carbon capture, hydrogen production, um, alternative fuels, you know, uh, elongation storage, a whole range of different technologies. And so at least for now, the you know, posture of the Congress is silver buckshot, like just try it all and start the race and see who wins at the end of the decade, right? Who, which technologies can replicate the success that we've seen for wind and solar and batteries over the last decade, which have all plummeted in cost thanks to early policy support. Um, that when these were expensive alternative energy technologies started the race, right? And, you know, and injected a bunch of uh, capital into the market to get them moving and, uh, and, and succeeded in driving them down in cost so that now they're not expensive alternatives. They're the most cost-effective sources of electricity again. And you see the entire automotive sector poised to switch over to you know, substantial investment in electric vehicles using lithium-ion batteries. So we have another decade to do the same thing with the clean firm technologies and the advanced storage and the hydrogen production and the carbon capture, the range of technologies that we're going to need to help decarbonize both the grid and the economy as a whole, uh, like industry and heating and transportation. Um, from 2030 and beyond, right? Because we don't need those technologies now. We need them in 10 years. But if we don't invest in them now, when we don't need them, <laughs> they won't be there and be ready when we do. And so that was really the focus of this research for the last several years was trying to identify that portfolio of technologies and emphasize why, even though we have cheap wind and solar and batteries and you know other apparently dominant uh, options, we still need those technologies and we still want to put the upfront investment in a portfolio strategy now to make sure that we have at least one and ideally several uh, viable technologies that are mature, that are cost effective, that have industry backing, you know, and investment uh, that are, you know, scalable by the end of the decade. That is super helpful and uh, promising as well. It also is a perfect segue into our next topic point, which is the Build Back Better agenda. And we could probably fill an entire podcast episode on what all is included and the likelihood of it getting passed and all of the political ramifications. But one element that I think we specifically want to touch on is the proposed Clean Electricity Performance Program, or CEPP. Could you give our listeners a brief overview of what it entails and what it would mean for the electricity system? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start by explaining that one of the challenges of the current political moment is that because the range of things that get bipartisan agreement from both parties right now is pretty limited. We saw what that looked like in the bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? It includes some R&D and demonstration funding for those advanced technologies, it includes some money for transmission, for, um, you know, grid resilience, which everybody wants, right? You know, including Texans now, right? We all want a very reliable grid. Um, and for some electric vehicle charging infrastructure and things like that, um, that's what managed to get funding in the bipartisan bill. Also for climate resilience, because everywhere is getting walloped by climate disasters, regardless of whether they're red states or blue states or red you know, districts or blue districts. So there's some good stuff in the infrastructure bill. But notably, none of that stuff is going to drive substantial emissions reductions right now, this decade. And we can't afford to, do, you know, to just develop next generation technologies for the next 10 years and delay those emissions reductions uh, until those technologies are ready. 
So we have to do both. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to do all that stuff. And I commend both parties for coming together to um, support all those important investments in advanced energy technologies and infrastructure. But we also need to be dramatically reducing emissions this decade to be on a, a path to cut emissions to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 at the latest, which is what the president has committed to and what is consistent with the U.S.'s responsibility to confront climate change in the global context. The president has also outlined a goal to cut emissions by at least 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. We're about 20% below those levels now. And projections are that without further policy, we'll stay at about that level. Might go up a little bit, might go down a little bit, depending on you know uncertainties and economic outcomes. But we're not going to see the substantial additional emissions reductions that we need over the decade without a big push from federal policy. And so that's where we get to the Build Back Better bill. Um, which is the budget reconciliation bill that the House Democrats and Senate Democrats are working on. And I stress Democrats because it is a partisan bill. It is a bill that will pass through a parliamentary procedure known as reconciliation, which allows for the governing party to pass a, a budget bill on a 50 vote or greater simple majority. Um, and so the limitation then is that you can only pass budgetary measures. It's the budget, right? It's spending money, raising revenue. Uh, and so you can't do things like enact a new EPA regulation on power plants or implement a new clean electricity standard that would require via regulation all the utilities to go just buy more clean energy, which is what 30 states have so have done in, in the U.S. Uh, and so it has to be spending or it has to be revenue related. And it can't just be incidentally related to budgetary impact. It has to be intrinsic to the function of the policy. Uh, and there's a parliamentarian uh, in the Senate who gets to sort of decide yes or no, this is in or out. There's been some high profile debates about like raising the minimum wage or uh, immigration reform. And those have been rejected as kind of tangential because the argument was we do this thing that involves in changes in wages for workers that incidentally raises revenue or costs you know, revenue for different social programs. And the parliamentarian said, that's too far removed. You gotta be like, you gotta be spending a lot of money or raising a lot of revenue. So what the clean electricity performance program is, is an effort to drive decarbonization of the electricity sector using budgetary measures, using carrots in the form of grants from the Department of Energy and sticks in the form of uh, underperformance payments or penalties that utilities pay if they don't add clean energy at the requisite pace. And so what it does is it sets a goal for utilities to basically start where they are and add clean electricity at a pace in the House bill of four percentage points per year or greater if they do that, they qualify for grants, which cover the incremental cost or extra cost of that buying that clean energy, and basically shift the cost of the clean energy transition off of customer bills, uh, electricity customer bills, and onto the tax base, which is much more progressive in the sense of higher income people pay more than lower income people, whereas electricity bills are the opposite, right? They're regressive. They're a much bigger portion of the uh, disposable income for low income families. And so it's you know got to be very careful about raising those rates. So it's a you know, more progressive, fairer way to pay for the energy transition, and it provides financial skin in the game for and motivation for uh, suppliers of retail electricity or utilities to go buy more clean energy. On the other hand, if they fall short of that four percentage points per year goal, they pay an underperformance payment for every megawatt hour that they're short of that threshold. And so that's a kind of you know, a stick that's waiting in the background to encourage utilities to keep moving forward at that pace. Um, that's sort of it in a nutshell. There's, you know, we can, there's differing, you know, specifics to it, but it's basically grants if you, uh, to cover the cost of new clean energy additions, if you add clean energy at a fast enough pace, 
Four uh, percent is pretty quick. The average growth rate, the growth rate last year, which is a record year um, for clean energy share, was two point three percentage points. So they got to accelerate, which is you know what we want. We want to put the pedal to the metal and keep pushing faster than what utilities are doing anyway. And to make that feasible, we're going to you know the federal government's going to inject a whole bunch of money into the market to make it cheaper to do that. And that's both the clean electricity performance program, which again directly kind of rebates the cost to retailers and utilities for buying more clean energy and motivates the demand side of the wholesale market. And it's also a big robust package of tax credits for wind and solar and carbon capture and advanced nuclear and a whole bunch of other clean energy technologies um, that makes the supply side cheaper. So it makes clean energy cheaper to, for those utilities to buy. And in conjunction, those two policies, those two package of policies can get us uh, an 80% reduction in emissions from the electricity sector over the decade uh, below 2005 levels, which is the biggest chunk of the president's economy-wide goal of cutting emissions in half um, from 2005 levels. And if you can't do that, if we fall far short of that goal, it'd be very difficult to make up the emissions reductions in other sectors to get to that 50% goal because the power sector is a, you know, has available cheap substitutes in the form of wind and solar and batteries and efficiency. And we can cut emissions further and faster in the electricity sector than any other sector this decade. So we really have to get the emissions low hanging fruit there while we continue to in invest in the you know, technologies we need to decarbonize other sectors uh, you know, at an accelerating pace uh, as time goes on. You mentioned the limitations of the budget reconciliation process and you described the design of the program really well. What came to mind for me is it seems like the plan does a really good job at kind of stimulating or simulating the, the type of command and control measures that have been pursued via federal regulations, an example being Obama's Clean Power Plan. Uh, but in this case, the rules would actually be codified in law if the bill is passed. Uh, so historically, one of the big policy debates that kind of revolves around this area is whether we should be pursuing these types of regulatory programs or instead enacting market-based measures like a carbon tax. In your view, is CEPP complementary to carbon pricing? Is it a sufficient substitute for something like that? I'd be interested to hear where you land in that debate. Yeah, great question. And I actually uh, published, I was a visiting fellow at the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at, at University of Pennsylvania um, a couple of years ago and published a report with them uh, on carbon pricing. And, and I made my case for why I think carbon pricing routinely falls short of the economic ideal that we might learn about in our energy economics class or environmental economics class. Um, and so, the, you know, the basic idea of carbon pricing is there's some damage that occurs from uh, pollution, from climate change pollution, right, climate uh, warming pollution, uh, greenhouse gases, that is a quote unquote externality. It's external to the market transaction between two people, right? I go buy gasoline, I pay $3.20 a gallon, but out, outside of that $3.20 I pay is a bunch of additional damage that I'm causing to the world by um, burning that gasoline and causing uh, accelerating global warming. And so the kind of classic economic prescription for that problem is, well, price that externality into the market transaction. And then the wisdom of the market, the kind of distributed wisdom of millions of decision makers all doing the right thing in response to those prices, will cut emissions to the appropriate level that reflects the willingness to pay to avoid that damage versus the value we get from the damages. Great in theory, unquestionably good. Um, and when it can be done, we should do it. Um, the challenge is twofold. One is we actually have no idea what that social cost of carbon or that external damage is. 
it, you know, estimates from legitimate economists using different techniques range by two orders of magnitude from a few dollars to a few thousand dollars. And even if we did know what it is, it, almost, it doesn't matter because no one's really setting the price based on the social cost of carbon that an economist told them. They're setting it based on whatever they think they can politically get away with. And because a carbon price does two things, the two things that it is that make it effective at um, efficiently driving reductions in emissions are also its Achilles heel in the political realm, which is that it hits every sector of the economy, right? So we can find the lowest cost reductions wherever they are and it hits them all equally. Um, and second, at least ideally it would, it would cover every sector. And second, it's salient. People notice gas prices going up, they notice energy prices going up and they change their behavior accordingly. Unfortunately, both of those dynamics mean that politically speaking, it's very difficult to implement at anywhere near the, even the lower end estimates of the social cost of carbon. And so if you look around the world, a good chunk of the emissions in the world actually are subject to a carbon price of one sort or another. Uh, but those prices are routinely below $20 a ton, which is well below the low end of these sort of social cost estimates. Um, and so only a few places in the world have carbon prices of 30, 40, 50, 70, $100, which is what you would probably want to see, uh, if not more, if we were trying to drive most of the emission reductions we need to see via carbon pricing. Um, and that's because you know, you have very salient public reactions to increases in gas prices and, you know, and heating prices and things like that. You had the yellow vest movement in Paris, uh, in, in, in France, partly sparked by the effort to price carbon on top of already rising, you know, prices for low income consumers and concerns about inequality. Um, and second, because it links every sector of the economy, what it means is that the most powerful and least willing to pay sector can block progress across every sector or they can exempt themselves, which is often what happens. And so you either get incomplete coverage, which means it's not as efficient as you want, or that set blocking sector keeps the price really low um, in every other sector. Uh, and so then it's not as efficient as you want either. And so in practice, carbon pricing routinely falls short of the economic prescription. And what we see instead is that we're able to enact sector specific policies that are more akin that are that are easier to pass because either the costs for consumers are hit more hidden or less salient or because they are seen as supporting something people like like clean energy or electric vehicles rather than penalizing something that they don't like like fossil fuels or gas consumption um, and they're designed to be transformative in those sectors so i want they're, they're designed to take a technology that's expensive and make it cheap as opposed to take what's cheap now and make it expensive and so the politics of that tends to be much more successful. And we have lots of real world examples of these sorts of policies being enacted and sustained over time. Uh, the most successful being the impact of wind, on wind and solar, I think, of uh, various subsidies, which if you look at them as a pure kind of cost per ton of emissions avoided, look way more expensive than the social cost of carbon potentially. But because they also drive innovation and market transformation and change the politics of what's possible, have far more benefit in a dynamic context, I think, than is captured in the sort of static allocation of scarce, you know, rights and the sort of allocative efficiency that we think of in, in Econ 101. And so I'm, I come on the side of they're both complementary. We should put the highest price on carbon as we can, politically speaking. Uh, in this Congress, that might be zero or it might be a few bucks. There's some discussion right now about a limited carbon tax that exempts gasoline and maybe power and probably pretty small, but could raise some important revenues to pay for the overall package. Um, or nothing, right? Because right now the current house bill has no carbon price in it. And then a bunch of sector specific market transformation policies 
that are designed to kickstart innovation and cost declines and consumer adoption and infrastructure build out in each of those sectors to basically put us on a kind of irreversible path um, towards cleaner energy in, in each of those sectors. Great. Last question, and I was going to say million-dollar question, but then I had a flashback to all of my business school classes last year where we had venture capitalists come in and speak to us, and the first or second thing they'll tell you is uh, that they only show up for billion-dollar opportunities. So let's make this the last question and a billion-dollar question. Based on your view of the energy system, Jesse, where do you feel like the big opportunities are, and what areas do you think MBA students like Thomas and me should focus on if we want to have the greatest impact when it comes to decarbonizing the economy? It's a great question. I mean, the good news is that this is such a transformative opportunity across so many different sectors that there's huge opportunity for a new generation of leaders in the private sector and business and entrepreneurship and finance uh, to accelerate that transition and to work on hard problems, right? And, you know, we need, the policy environment is necessary, right? Because it shapes the economic opportunity so fundamentally, but it's not sufficient. Because even if the policy is there, you still have to figure out how to make the technology work. You got to figure out the business model to finance it. You got to figure out the behavioral economics to get consumers to actually respond to the price signals or to respond to the rebates or to buy the electric vehicles and feel comfortable with them. You know, there's so many different challenges to bringing uh, technology and a business to market and capturing the value proposition that's there uh, that, you know, we need a whole new generation of business leaders that are going to tackle it. Um, just for a sense of scale, I would go and check out the Net Zero America study that Princeton published. I was a, a co-author on uh, back in December. We're about to release the final version of that report. The December one was an interim report, which looks in pretty exhaustive detail at, at a you know higher level of granularity than any other report at what different pathways from here to net zero might look like. And one of the things we really focused on in that is the need for capital mobilization, because we are shifting from an energy system that uses a lot of fuel today, stuff we dig up out of the ground and burn, right, which is a variable cost for the most part, to a system that is much more capital intensive, right? We're investing in fixed assets or things with a higher upfront cost and lower running costs like an electric vehicle, an efficient air, you know, heat pump or a, you know, more uh, insulation in our buildings, uh, wind farms, solar farms, nuclear power, all very capital intensive. Uh, CO2 pipelines, transmission you know, lines, all of this is capital intensive. And so we need to mobilize trillions of dollars of investment, even if the average cost of energy we find actually only goes up by about 3% over this decade um, and stays in line as a share of GDP or even lower than it has been historically in our study. So we find that it's affordable to do all this. But because we're shifting to a much more capital intensive you know, uh, set of assets, we have to basically double or more capital investment in the energy sectors over the next decade. So that's a huge challenge, right? You got to figure out the business models that can attract that capital. You got to figure out the financial structures that can underwrite it. And, you know, we got to figure out how to motivate consumers to also make very big changes in how we go about, you know, buying durable goods. Um, anything that lasts for more than 10 or 15 years, like a car or a heat pump, you know, an HVAC system, a boiler, we only have one or two replacements of that long lived asset between now and 2050 when we're supposed to be at zero net zero emissions. And so if you miss that replacement opportunity and you say, well, when my water heater broke and I need a new one this week and the only one I can go out and buy or the only one I trust is a gas water heater, well, now you've just locked into a gas water heater for another 10 or 15 years. And if you do that again, we're, we're past 2050. Um, and so there's all kinds of challenges to engaging with consumers to get them to think about not just the upfront sticker price, but the life cycle cost of ownership for these assets, the role of policy, the importance of cutting emissions. 
uh, so that we can, you know, accelerate the uptake of electric vehicles and heat pumps and energy efficient technologies and all the other things that consumers have to interface with as well. So tons of challenges, more than enough opportunity, not just to uh, create wealth and, and value, but also to tackle an enormous problem uh, and societal challenge, which is how do we confront uh, climate change and reduce emissions? I think just the last thing I want to close with is if you follow the climate disasters that are unfolding around us, you know, the wildfires in the West where I grew up, the, um, you know, hurricanes and flooding that, you know, hit around here just uh, recently uh, and are exacerbated by climate change and warmer temperatures, you know, it can get kind of dire to sort of think about this stuff. There's two things I want to stress. One is that, you know, we hear a lot about these sort of um, arbitrary sounding deadlines or, or um, thresholds like 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2 degrees Celsius. Um, anytime you hear a kind of round number like that, even net zero by 2050, those are kind of politically convenient shorthand for what really has to happen. And what really has to happen is that we have to hit net zero emissions globally as quickly as possible to reduce emissions by as much as we can, right? And reduce warming by as much as we can. And um, I feel like making t-shirts, I think I'll probably go do this, that say, you know, every tenth of a degree matters. Um, because not 1.9 degrees is fine and 2.1 is disastrous. Every tenth of a degree of warming exacerbates impacts that are already dangerous today. Um, and so the faster we act, the faster we mobilize new businesses, new solutions, new capital, new policy, the faster we cut emissions, the more suffering we avoid, the more um, security we, we have for our children and future generations and, and ourselves. The second thing is, while it seems like progress is slow and it's true and we're behind, the thing that gives me hope is that we can accelerate progress by working in a sort of feedback loop where, again, policy can create early market opportunities, businesses and entrepreneurs and investors can catalyze those markets, bring forward new technologies that get cheaper over time with economies of scale and innovative um, engineering and production and, and improvement, which in turn makes the politics easier because now the solutions are cheaper. So if you think about the last time Congress took up federal climate policy in 2009, where we failed to pass a major climate bill, wind cost three times as much as it did now. Solar cost 10 times as much as it did now. And you could not buy an electric vehicle with longer than 50 mile range. Today, wind and solar, again, are cheaper than natural gas, new natural gas fired power, um, cheaper than the average wholesale price of electricity, cheaper than the operating cost of most coal plants in the country. and GM, Ford, Volvo, uh, VW, the whole automotive sector, it seems, um, are poised to invest in bringing to market dozens of electric vehicles with 200, 300, even 400 mile range. Um, and that is a direct product of that feedback loop. Policy begets investment, begets innovation, begets cost declines, begets political will, begets policy, right? And so whether you're wherever you are in that cycle, if you're an organizer working on the political side, if you're a policymaker thinking about the politics, if you're a business uh, student thinking about how to mobilize capital and form a business, or if you're an engineer or entrepreneur I mean, or, or innovator trying to think about how do I improve a technology, grab the biggest lever you can, put your shoulder into it, and accelerate that flywheel as quickly as we can because that's how we tackle climate change. That's how we make faster progress over time. And we desperately need to make faster progress. Jesse, I think that was a great closing statement. I feel both much smarter and energized to help work towards decarbonization. Uh, if you do start printing those t-shirts, I will absolutely buy one. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and all the best to you. You too, keep in touch. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes and our new first year co-host, 
and follow us on Twitter and Instagram for all up-to-date information on the Morton Current. Thank <laughs> you.